Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at everything that's going on in and around the news and media world. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. It's been a while since we did one of these, but as I remember, the process is we say words to each <laughs> yeah. other. I think that's right. And then I take them away and try and put it in some sort of coherent order. Is that about right? It's perfect. Well, AI hasn't taken over our jobs just yet. (laughs) So this episode is actually a PPA Festival special. Um, Now, the PPA Festival was one of the many events the team has been at in the last couple of... uh, I was going to say a couple of months, but it is actually... It has only been about four weeks. That can't be true. Uh, Yeah, I know, (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So uh, we had a kind of mad end of April where we decided to, between the three of us, go to two conferences and then run the Published Podcast Awards the next day mm-hmm. um and yeah I, i'd slept very well the rest of that week <laughs> um but so peter and i we were at the ppa festival uh, we've done some recordings we spoke to some people um along the theme of how publishers are future briefing audience relationships but before we get into that chris where were you on that day so i went to a local news summit that was hosted by google and it was all channel house rules which is actually really nice because it means that though i can't talk about any specifics here there was a very collegiate atmosphere there everybody was chatting everybody was sharing a lot of optimism about the state of local news some solutions that potentially coming down for everything from discovery to revenue yeah it was just it was a really fun day i was looking enough to host that i was there for the entire event so yeah i actually got to speak to some of the best and most interesting people in around local media before we get into the PPA Festival, the awards the following day, we actually did for the first time a forum, which you two led. Um, I suppose what, what came out of that? Because there was some, everybody seemed really, really buzzed about it from where I was just doing all the setting that up and the table center pieces. Well, we did fun. two separate streams. Peter, what were you talking? You were talking mostly about revenue. Revenue, phone. yeah, money. Uh, mm-hmm. filth, filthy liquor. I mean, it, we, it was the same kind of chat about rules in the sense that we we... Then we said we weren't going to report what people were seeing to give people a chance to be, you know, open and honest. And it was, you know, it was unstructured in the sense of it was just me kind of firing questions at people or or people firing questions at each other. And I think that was the best part of it was that kind of shared experience and shared problems as much as anything else. Um, programmatic came up in that. We were talking about host reads, which, you know, there's a problem with host reads. They're nice and they're engaging and all the rest of it, but it's difficult to scale, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about host reads versus um, programmatic or dynamic insertions. And uh, someone says, well, you know, now you can get host reads where the AI will mimic the host's voice. And I was yeah. just like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to work here anymore. Why Why would we stop with the answer? Why, why would we not just do exactly. the entire podcast? Why don't we just prompt it every day with a sort of like bang out a podcast as the three of us and then just you go got, back to bed? We quite reckon if you can get AI, can get, who was it? Werner Herzog talking to, <laughs> was it Kub, Stanley Kubrick? I can't remember. Uh, I looked into the eyes of AI and saw nothing but darkness. <laughs> Anyway, it was um, really good fun, and I definitely want to do that again. Mm. It was it was it was excellent. Over in the other stream, we touched upon AI a little bit, but I know that we all spoke about video and its role in podcasting going forward. But we also spoke about things like discovery and uh, what role social platforms and third parties can actually play in the production and distribution of podcasting. So yeah, exactly the same thoughts. Really interesting chat. People will come in with a very sort of um 
open-minded and you know, sharing first attitude and so yeah it was it was it was really really good actually i was worried going into it as we always are ahead of our runs i think but uh-huh. no this was uh this was great everyone was so chatty so in as much as we've taken you know the, that break to do a lot we also have just as much coming up peter what is the current state of play with the publisher newsletter awards so we launched the publisher newsletter awards at the beginning of the year um <laughs> it was one of Esther was laughing at me because I was like, oh my God, we've had no entries in and it's a deadline day kind of thing. Uh, and then they all came in at the same time. So we ended up with like 160 entries uh, and a shortlist of about 100 and some amazing names on there. You know, a, a kind of real mirror of, of the podcast awards in some ways. You know, Reach mm. is on there, the FT's on there, the Telegraph's there, and then some from the States, the Atlantic. Um, a group called CityCast, who I hadn't heard of before they entered the awards. They do some really cool stuff with podcasts and newsletters. So, yeah, it was, uh, it's been fun. The shortlist is out. You can see it on, oh, I'm never getting this website address right, <laughs> publishernewsletters.com. And we're in the process of figuring out when and where the award ceremony will be. It'll be in London and it'll be in July, but we're trying to nail down a venue. I think it makes sense what you're saying there about there being a lot of overlap because if you're a publisher who's innovating in one area, you probably have something about your culture and just in terms of your internal development, which means you're necessarily going to be doing interesting stuff in another discipline as well. Yeah. And, you know, we've spoken about the parallels between newsletters and podcasts before, very sort of like direct to audience, speaking to an audience in a way that they choose to listen to or read. So, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense to me. Esther, why don't you almost tee up what you're going to be doing in this episode and sort of what you were talking about at the PBA Festival? So we at Media Voices, we're really proud to be um, media partners for the PPA. Um, so Peter and I went along while Chris was off doing the local news one. We're sort of looking at, all, you know, what do we want to focus on as part of this? Because the PPA, it's a huge festival. There were sort of four four huge stages covering a massive range of topics. So what we decided to look at is how publishers are future-proofing audience relationships. We do have rising challenges from things like AI. There's an economic recession. I think everybody's feeling the advertising and subscription slowdowns. There's a lot of pressures on publishers. Um, And the only way to really keep winning is to deliver real value to your audience. There were some really interesting speakers we saw on the agenda for the audience stage. You know, the, the, the businesses ultimately that succeed are going to be those that prioritize reader relationships. So we spoke to a range of publishers at the PPA Festival to find out how they plan to future-proof those audience connections. So I spoke to Amanda Wigginton. She's done some research that she was talking about at, uh, at the festival, but the value exchange between publishers and how that's changing with the readers. Um, and then I also talked to Mark Alka, who was talking about Mark. We've spoken to in the past. He's uh, the founder and publisher of Single Track Magazine, a mountain bike magazine. Um, and Mark was talking about community, and that was a really interesting session. That was the, the PPA had put some people on who are not from publishing. <laughs> and when I first saw their names on the on the list, I was like, "What are they doing here?" And they were really, really good. It was really interesting to get a different perspective. Um, so that was on the community side, and Esther's laughing because I know exactly who she's thinking about. Well, you'll have to listen to the end to hear who I'm speaking about, because I, I, I put in a segment for one of my favourite talks, um, which all I'm just going to say is it involves the dominatrix's whip. Right. 
Now, considering that I wasn't there and this is the first time I think you brought that up to me, I'm going to have to listen to this episode now. You can't talk Do about us. dominatrixes without <laughs> piquing somebody's interest. I don't think we talk about them enough, to be honest, after what I heard at the festival. <laughs> we'll get into that now. Um, we've got little intros to each other's segment. But just a very quick disclaimer that the audio, some of the audio isn't up to our usual standard. There are some segments we recorded from, like live from the sessions. So there's quite a bit of background chatter, background noise. Uh, I like to think it all adds to the vibe. But, it's yeah, authentic. We... <laughs> mm. We're all about the vibes here at Media yeah. Voices. We started off by hearing from PPA CEO Sajida Morali about why audience is so high on the agenda for publishers. I think there are definitely specific areas that um, are a result of external factors. Obviously, people making choices around their subscriptions and what they're picking up on the newsstand and things like that. But I think the bigger thing that was really coming through on the agenda was the technological advances. So that external pressure, um, which has meant that, you know, we're as an industry, we're having some really real conversations about you know the evolving search landscape ai was you know a theme right right across the the agenda so i i think um one big change that i definitely saw in um you know in how members were feeding back on the agenda and the festival as a whole was that they definitely felt that there was a real optimism around the the value of the journalism that's being created so, you know, the, the trust that audiences have with the fact that that journalism is fact-checked and vetted and all of those things that we, we spoke about. Um, so, and, and that comes with a real, I think, opportunity to be more optimistic about, you know, things like yield, things like the effectiveness that audiences can deliver because they are more engaged, because they trust the content that's being written, um, you know, versus the user-generated stuff that's all over the platforms. So I think that, to me, was a big theme that was really coming out on the audience stage. One of the guests Peter spoke to was Amanda Wiggington, a customer strategy, data and insight specialist who's worked with B2B and B2C players on business strategy and data transformation. She's noticed recently how the value exchange between publishers and readers is changing. So I obviously am very close to consumers. So my background is data, insight, customer strategy. So for me, the value exchange is absolutely fundamental. And I think, I'll be honest and say, I don't think we've got it right up until this point. Um, I think that was driven by digital, where the focus was just on volume and scale. And I think what, what we're seeing now, and I've actually just done a big uh, project with the PPA, is almost a return to the value and the customer exchange uh, or the, the value exchange with that customer and putting the customer actually central to everything. And what that research showed us actually was that it's no longer just about print and digital. It's actually that the really important thing is nailing what that customer need is and giving them the content in the format or, you know, the way that they need to consume it. So I would say, uh, I don't think we're quite there yet, uh, but I think we're starting to see it rise up the hierarchy again. Um, and that's largely because of uh, us having to diversify our revenue models, like, so subscriptions, memberships, it's sort of quantifying what that value is, is, is becoming really important. You can't just create an app 
build it, they won't necessarily come. Tell them why they need to come and they will. So what does Amanda think publishers need to be doing in terms of leading that product development? So I think, I think this is about sort of cultural change, actually. I grew up in, uh, when we were launching magazines in print, right? And product development was absolutely fundamental to a print launch. You know, you were spending millions of pounds. Uh, and I think it's, that's, that's sort of changed. We sort of lost that sort of focus within a business. So I think that product um, first or consumer first sort of culture needs to come back into the business so for me it's about collectively people from different disciplines working together to innovate find new opportunities create new content leverage existing content uh, in order to sort of develop those products because a lot of that the the stuff that our consumers want might already be in existence within the the business too Uh, and I think sometimes you just don't haven't packaged it in the right way I think Covid was a really good example of that where you know where everybody turned to gardening uh, or, or focused on their health what you suddenly saw was publishers build content or places for consumers to go that, that reflected that, that changed focus. And I think COVID has been a great sort of, you know, the accelerator for actually thinking about where are your consumers going for this content? Talking of leading product, newsletters are obviously great. They've been one of the heroes of the last couple of years. But what makes them really work for subscription publishers? One of the highlights from the audience stage was Sarah Ebener, who is the executive editor and head of newsletters for the Financial Times, who spoke about their newsletter strategy at the FT. So we use them traditionally for engagement um, to enhance the value of subscription. We actually have a funny two-tier subscription at the FT. So we have premium and standard, and the new sets are pretty much split between the two. Um, And the premium ones tend to be much longer bespoke, exclusive content, reading your inbox. So I'm really not interested in the click rate for any of those newsletters, which is why the changes that Apple introduced a few years ago on open rate have not been that helpful, because they were more predicated on, on their open rate. But we do have an amazing reader survey now, which means we can compare our newsletters to each other and rank them by what readers think. So you'll see from this, we have a huge number. Funny enough, that uh, percentage of engaged FD subscribers has gone up from 11% to 17% on uh, most recent stats. Um, I did update it, but I was obviously too late. <laughs> I updated it last week. Um, so that's FD subscribers that were engaged that wasn't for newsletters, and that's an awful lot, because obviously a lot more are engaged as well with the newsletters. Um, and you can see here that you know, people are far more likely to be retained if they're subscribed to a newsletter, whether they're on trial and, or not. You know, if they're a general refugee reader, they're more likely to stay as a subscriber if they're signed up to a newsletter. And we're trying to sign up more and more um, to more newsletters. So what makes a good newsletter is probably what you're all wondering. Um, there's some really obvious things. If I asked you now what do you think makes a good newsletter, you'd probably share with me. So you'd probably say, you know, the voice, content, personality, uh, all those kinds of things. I would put in the linking language if you want people to click. I am still amazed when I see newsletters that uh, people say in this column, um, and they hyperlink that one word column, and then they write the most exciting thing about that column and someone said we should kill all these terrible, evil, whatever, so don't want to say something that might be weird there. Um, I would suggest linking that part of it because that's what's going to make people click. So I'm very keen on looking at the linking language or, you know, this brilliant piece, do you agree? That kind of thing. Um, but there's, there's more, you know, whether it's good depends, goes back to what its aim was. You might have some newsletter that's doing very well, but no one 
it doesn't really serve your audience. What's the point of it? Is it hitting your aim? Um, so you always need to have your measure of success. But more importantly, and squash down at the bottom there, I'm not sure if you can see, is every good newsletter should be building habits um, and relationships with your readers, which I would mean include something like sending it at the same time. Every time you send it, don't just send it when you finish writing. It builds up the habit, they'll learn to expect it at 8 of the evening, one must read, um, or 9.30 in the morning, for example. Products like newsletters that work well for retention are now a priority for publishers and are a key part of the value exchange with audiences. Single Track World's Mark Alka spoke to us about some of the challenges of balancing acquisition with retention. How do you make subscriptions and membership work? Right, well, it's, it's a value proposition. It, it's a circular argument, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, in many ways, it's kind of easy to get the acquisition side of things going because there's so many things that we can do as publishers from just basically doing the classic one pound down and you're in for a month and see how it goes and then you, we convert you into a full member. The tricky thing is keeping them. The, tri the, the, the key to it is how do you ensure that your audience feels that they're getting value uh, from you when it comes to renewal time? That's the challenge. Retention is, is everything. And that's the, the really tricky thing. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of uh, algorithms out there and theories that state that, and I, I actually do go along with these, that uh, retaining a single subscriber at the end of year one is worth five times more than actually acquiring a new one. The cost of acquisition is so high because the energy you put into the campaigns to get people in, that if you can get them through that first threshold at the end of year one, then certainly in our instance, we've got them for another four years. Right. That's basically how the equation works for us. Um, you, other publishers' mileages may vary, of course. But. Getting people through the door may not be easy, but perks aren't necessarily sustainable and require careful weighing up against what loyal subscribers and members get. Mark has had a lot of experience navigating this at Single Track World. Getting people through the door is these, you know, we can... We can tempt people in with all the different offers, the, the traditional things of, oh, try us free for a month. And, you know, so it's, that's the easy part. But it's, it's the, and, and giving some sort of perk to a sign-up, that's the easy thing. That's how, you know, the traditional model of acquisition. But then, of course, when it comes to retention and you've got a year passes and that person's paying again, but they're not getting that perk, that's the problem. That's that's really really difficult. We've we've had conversations with our members who've said, why is it that only new members get a free T-shirt? Why don't you give T-shirts to all of us for being loyal? And we've had to say, you know, paying out six and a half thousand T-shirts is not an economic proposition that we're going to be able to uh, maintain year in year out. So unfortunately, you know, so it, that's the challenge. The challenge is then convincing those people that they're still getting value. And that's where the constant development of new ideas and new products. And it's why we moved over to a membership system. So rather than subscription, which people associate with payment, we've moved over to a membership proposition where we're trying to create not just content delivery, but a reason for being in that membership system in the first place. So there's continued benefits being being a you know, so we've got things like members don't see ads on the website. So this is an ongoing thing that they, they perceive as a value every time that they come to the website. Uh, we've recently launched a new discount scheme whereby it's about, I think it's about 20,000 different 
um, retailers in the scheme. And there's a ours is sort of um, got a, a kind of a bent towards the sports side of things, but it means that the longer you stay as a member, the more that you can potentially save with your ongoing purchases. So it's the development over the, going back to the original question of what's changed over the 20 years. I guess at the start it was all about content. Now it's about ongoing value, which goes beyond the content and into other products and other services that you can offer. One of the sessions on recession-proof ways to deliver more value to your audience saw Ed Garcia, Head of Retention at Immediate Media, describe how they're creating a premium subscriber experience for their Gardener's World audience. So first of all, our relationship with John starts um, right at welcome. So uh, we put together a sort of welcome onboarding campaign, um, which, which basically uh, gives, starts to give content to our customers while they're waiting for the print magazine to, to arrive. So they, they're, they're excited, they've just subscribed to the magazine, we then get them engaged, we then have personalised, a personalised series of welcome and onboarding, um, which, uh, uh, which starts their journey and then is personalised based on, based on what, their, what, what action they get sent. Um, but then it doesn't stop there, so after we've onboarded them, we, we don't leave them alone and then just wait to see what happens. We then had to engineer lots of opportunities to contact these people. Um, to the point earlier about newsletters, premium newsletters, uh, personalised premium newsletters where we can we basically can recognise the fact that they have unlocked their digital access or not and what content they're viewing, using exclusive content such as the um, analytics past, uh, webinars. Um, uh, we, we, we built some uh, issue on its way emails, so we write to people to say your magazine's on its way, you get them excited about receiving the post. In the meantime, there's all this stuff online you can go and and have that. And then to reach those offline people, um, paper apps where we're, we're, we're pushing that, also to reach the gift recipients who don't have that relationship with at all. This is all part of a journey, so this is, this is our journey we're, we're on in terms, of, in terms of how we're building that relationship with subscribers. So we've talked about welcome and onboarding, um, creating those reasons to talk to our subscribers, regular <coughs> contact, whether that's newsletters or, uh, or, or, different, um, uh, or different email campaigns. That's where Garner's World Premium comes in, adding value to our subscribers. Um, so uh, we, we're giving them that value, but then the real value starts after that. It's then personalising comms and our relationship with our subscribers uh, based, on, based on their engagement with us. Um, and then, more importantly, if we see that somebody is consuming less content from us, we can then have that trigger to, to, um, to make an intervention to say, you know, this person is likely to cancel their subscription soon because they're, they're engaging with us less. So we can, we can start to tailor our content uh, and our communications based on that. So some numbers, I have to give some results. So this is what we've learned. So, so far on Gardner's World, uh, we now have 90,000 people, 90,000 print subscribers who've now unlocked their access to Gardner's World Premium. Um, that's half our file, half our print direct subscribers now have, um, uh, have now engaged with us uh, online. Of those 90,000 people, uh, those those 90,000 people um, are now renewing, when they've come up for renewal, are renewing nine percentage points better than the other 90,000 people who are not engaging with us. And that's worth a lot of money. If you think of, if, you know, over a year, just keeping a few percent, nine percent of people worth 234,000 pounds. And if we take that, those 90,000 people and break that down even further, there's a lot of those people, or some of those people, who we managed to convince to unlock, but they haven't come back to consume any other data. 
in your content from us. They're renewing at 74%, which is still pretty good. But actually, if they have logged in to premium within the last month, that jumps up to 92%. And if they have engaged with us 15 times in the last three months, that's then 96%. So we can see that there's even within that 9% points increase, there's still a lot we can do to influence retention based on, based on the frequency and recency of their engagement with us. So now we've got a way of predicting whether John is going to renew or not. We don't have to sit back and just wait to see what happens. Um, we, can, uh, we can basically see his engagement, see what content he's looking at, see whether he's expanding his content or whether he's just getting more of the same. And we can predict based on that um, whether he's likely to, to, uh, to cancel his subscription. This focus back on the consumer and their individual journeys is something Amanda has seen too, and thinks has changed as scale has become harder to sustain. If I'm honest, my personal view is we just forgot our consumers. Um, and I think that it's, I suppose it's, it's like when cover mounts were sort of the, the sort of domain, like the, I suppose the cocaine, let's call it the cocaine of magazines in the, in the 90s and noughties, right? I think scale has been that sort of fix that everybody's been focused on. So they've, I, don't, I think they've, you know, like if you think about a print product, we always thought about the quality of that audience, the quality of that product. We just don't do that in, in digital in the same way. It was about eyeballs, wasn't it, rather than who those individuals are. So uh, I would argue it's it, it's that it's the the consumer sort of centricity, I suppose, um, that 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 makes the difference. Mark Alka also had some thoughts to share about how that journey with the audience has changed over time for publishers. It's a tricky question. Yes, everything's changed. Where we were 23 years ago when we set about doing this has completely changed. But then in many ways it hasn't. You know, in many ways the heart of what we started 23 years ago was was a community. And uh, I, I hate to bring it back to that buzzword. It's the biggest buzzword in publishing at the moment. But it, it fundamentally is the heart of everything that we do. And if you want to know whether you're creating the correct content for your audience and whether that's what the audience, if you're actually fulfilling that value proposition to your audience, then you can't do that unless you've actually got a community there that you can actually engage with. Because that's fundamentally how your audience communicate, not just with each other as a community, but also with you as a media creator. You know, it's, it's a two-way process. So the key to it, I guess, is, is community. As Mark alluded to, community was a hot topic at the PPA Festival. During one of the sessions on cultivating communities, he shared how they run their own community forum at Single Track World, and why moderation is so important. A lot of communities, we, we have multiple communities because we use some of the platforms we've got, Twitter, we've got Facebook, uh, but our biggest community is actually on our own platform, it's on our website, so it's our forum. And the thing that's, I think, what looks good what works is because our forum is, I'm going to mention the M word now, uh, moderate. It's very well moderated. It's moderated from within. It's moderated by the community. We have volunteers from within the community doing moderation. And it's, it's moderation that's based entirely on uh, respect. So it's, it's fundamental. We have, we have a big uh, list of rules and regulations. But there is one rule right at the top which just governs everything, which is it's rule number one, it's called don't be a dick. 
<laughs> and so long as you bear that in mind when you're part of the community, the respect comes out of that. It's a great actual, I would highly recommend that you can go into great detail, you can have all your legal team write all the, the small print that you want, but all you need at the top is that number one rule. One aspect of the PPA Festival we enjoyed was looking outside the traditional publisher world for advice and inspiration. On the same panel as Mark was Claire Wayne, Marketing Director at Neom Organics, which is a British wellbeing brand with a suite of fragrance products. They have community at the heart of their marketing strategy, so Claire shared her advice for getting started with community building. So first thing I think would be quality over quantity, so I think it's pretty easy to go and chase the numbers when it comes to community and actually I think if you start small and get a real quality community and then obviously that will scale and then to a point earlier you've actually built a foundation of a really strong community that essentially you're following and advocates for the brand. And then the second piece for me would be, to answer your second question, would be, I think it's really imperative now that for brands and businesses that are, well, B2B but also B2C, that actually engagement and community is really embedded into that broader business strategy. So it's really critical as part of our three to five year plan. You know, community isn't a sidekick anymore. It's not something that sits on the side of a different team. It absolutely has to fuel the business strategy and the growth plan. Talking of looking at other industries for inspiration, some of the other panellists across the festival shared their inspirations when looking at audience development, community building and subscriber retention. Here's where Seema Kumari, Senior Director of Consumer Marketing and CRM at Hearst UK, thinks we should be paying attention to. I think the hospitality industry um, do a lot of great things. So did you know, guys, that if the waitress or waiter brings out your bill with one mint, the tip goes up by 3%, and two minutes or more, they see a spike of 20% in tips. So I think all this stuff's happening, and again, look at somebody giving you something. You know, a mint doesn't cost a lot of money, but look what it does to the brain. Um, I think restaurants, um, again, go, you know, go, going back to an industry, how they have the best seller on the menu, that increases choice by 30%. Now, if I owned a restaurant, I'd be just changing that every day, depending on my stock control and what that <laughs> um, go off that day. But um, yeah, I think I think retail is another classic one. The, the three for twos, you don't even know it's working, and you fall for it every time. Tony Hill, marketing and events director at Mark Allen Group, looks a little closer to home for retention inspiration. I had a dog a couple of years ago. When you sign up at Pets at Home, they ask you your name of your dog um, and your and the age of your dog, the first day of your dog. What that does incredibly is it allows them to, through the lifetime of my dog, select the right products and the right things as it as it grows. Um, and I love that concept of, of being able to do that. Can we do that in our own industries? Whether it's a, a mountain bike enthusiast that's only just um, just got their first mountain bike at the gardens, the gardener that started in lockdown. We, you know, if we can find out some of their journey of how long they've been in uh, that industry or, or what their knowledge is, then we can actually provide their concept at the right time. Um, you know, the farming concepts could be what type of, type of farmer they are. Are they a livestock farmer or, or an animal farmer? Can we actually give them relevant content which is really personal to their needs? But wherever you look and whatever inspiration you take for levelling up your audience relationships, it's vital to remember that there's no silver bullet fix, as Amanda reminded us. Well, 
and I think there is no one size fits all anymore. And I think, you know, like, uh, in fact, the guy, uh, Peter and John from Katardin, they talk about there's no magic bullet or no silver bullet, right? There isn't one fix. And I think, you know, I'm going to uh, go on again about the importance of the consumer. It is about, uh, you know, adapting and adjusting your business to meet your consumer's needs. So what we want to do is, as a PPA, is everybody to learn from best practice and from other people's mistakes too, right? So, you know, not every bit of advice is going to be relevant for everybody, but if we can bring it into one place, um, then that's great. You know, like, that's what the PPA is here for, isn't it? So where is that research available? So that, uh, we showed the snippets of it today at the festival, uh, and there'll be a sort of a detailed report uh, end of May, June time. So, uh, uh very exciting and I think the the one thing I would say about that report is it gives such an optimistic view of the future with my data insight customer strategy hat on I would say that customer value and the customer value exchange is right at the top (laughs) we'll finish up with an extract from one of the sessions that has really stuck with me a tip here conference organizers get sex props on stage if you want panels to be memorable Writer, broadcaster and sex educator Alex Fox brought along a black bag of six items related to her work, each of which had a lesson for establishing and maintaining audience relationships and credit to the other panellists for keeping a straight face on the stage. She only had time to get three of these out and I'd love to know what the rest were. So here's what you can learn about audiences from a dominatrix. Saying 
right, I'd like to be tortured, I'd like to be electrocuted, I'd like to be hung from the ceiling, uh, I'd like you to tickle me, uh, I'd like you to stuff me with an apple in my mouth like I'm a human pig and I'd like you to do it all whilst pretending to be my maths teacher and all, but, oh, my mother. They want everything in one session. Dominatrixes prefer to do pleasure at leisure, to drip feed those things, to take a step back and to, and to, um, to, to, to slow things down. You yourselves probably have a lot to offer. You've got a suite of things that you want, as you, as you both said, you want people to take advantage of the things that apply to them. You want to spread that pleasure. You want people to feel satisfied. Over, overload somebody and it will lead to overwhelming them. Um, and there are a number of problems associated with that. But for a start, for your audience, they might feel like it's been a cacophonous experience for them. They've had an email with a massive list of stuff that they're now supposed to activate as a result of joining, becoming a member or a subscriber. It's too, too much. And so it means that they don't get the full benefit. And also, from your point of view, as a supplier, you've suddenly given yourself a very small time period to do a lot for that person. You might struggle to keep up with it. It might not be possible. So drip feeding, doing that pleasure at leisure, means that you manage that experience. It's more likely to be positive on both ends. It gives people two reasons to come back to you. Firstly, they've already had a great experience. And secondly, there's stuff to look forward to. Thanks for listening. We may still officially be on a break from this season, but we're back Monday with a brand new special season called Big Noises from Media Voices. Season sponsored by Glide, CMS company that does CMS for everyone from the Sunday Times to the Racing Post and Hello Magazine. So the idea behind this season was really just to talk to some people who would tell me exactly what they think. Um, the very first interview is our old boss, Neil Thackeray. And Known, if for, being, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, known for being demure and keeping yeah, himself to very, himself. He's yeah. a tactful man. Very tactful man. <laughs> he's a timid soul. I spoke to him, he was on his boat in Sardinia. Um, and, and he, you know, as you would imagine, Neil just uh, basically went off unloaded um, basically told me why content is not king that was his starter for 10 and it went on from there <laughs> but this this job is a lot of fun right we get yeah. to do some really interesting stuff and this season i think should be fun interviews with big noises in media finally before you head off we have a really cool ai report and corresponding podcast episode that came out at the start of april so if you're listening to this the special ai episode is the one just before this in your podcast player and you can download the report from voices.media slash practical ai and that was yeah peter spoke to all these people about how they're actually using ai in practice in their organizations and it's a really great report really great podcast episode um, even if i say so myself so give it a <laughs> well, listen no. <laughs> I would say it is a very needed antidote to all the hype around yeah. AI. Let's talk oh, about it from a very yeah. practical point of view. These last these last couple of weeks, I think that while we've been off air, we've seen AI trotted out as almost like a sticking plaster over some shaky business models and just slapping an AI sticker on it and kind of going, look, we're sound, we're doing AI. This is <laughs> natural, <true>. really. <laughs> All the Bitcoin guys have pivoted to AI. Oh, I know, so. yeah, that's, that was when you knew it was going to be the next great hype cycle with some proper bullshit thrown in. But yeah, this is a really interesting and practical look at it. So it's, uh, it's, it's more interesting, I feel like, because it actually does have some tangible advice in there. 
And a big thank to United Robots for uh, letting us do it. I was kind of done it without their help. So, as Peter mentioned earlier, we are going to be back on Monday with the start of a brand new season of Big Noises. But until then, thank you so much for listening to well, Big we Voices. Well, we won't. I'm Ooh. actually going to be quiet what? for the next season, aren't I? Oh, that's right. Esther is going you to be You guys are on your own with away. this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, this, <laughs> this is going to be the last year for me, probably until... September. So, um, good luck, That's you two. That's crazy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good luck to you. Oh, it's only another human being. What? <laughs> How hard can it oh, be? Oh yeah, ex- well, exactly. Yeah, you've already you've already done it the once. I kept one alive. Well, I can keep yeah, another exactly. alive. That's fine. <laughs> well, so yeah, please do keep tuning in every Monday for Peter's big noises. But until Monday, when we'll be back with that brand new series. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.